Welcome to Creative Engineering. We have another exciting episode today. Today we have Simon Lightfoot. How are you doing, Simon? Hey, good, thanks. And we also have my co-host, Norbert. How are you doing? I'm doing great, too. So, Simon, how about you tell a little bit about yourself? Uh, where I know you've been using Flutter for quite a bit now, actually. It's always the hardest bit of introducing me because I've, I've just been around for, for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I guess in general, like, you know, I've been programming for like a good, good part of 20 years, I think. I've lost track. And... Um, <laughs> And then ten years professional Android development, and then finally last few years, I normally said two, but I think it's three years now. Time flies, but uh, I've been doing Flutter. So we started Flutter um, mid alpha. Nice. And uh, yeah, so I've gone to the community, and um, from my perspective, we needed it. Uh, so, so I'm also a CTO at Dev Angels, uh, Dev Angels London, a small de- small development agency doing apps, and. Um, we had a problem, the fact that we have Android expertise, but not much iOS expertise in the company. And uh, Flutter, so we were at, uh, was it uh, Google Developer Agency Day Europe, what name? But uh, And uh, there was an introduction done, um, I forget his name, I'm terrible with names. But um, there was an introduction done about Flutter, and I was like, all through the slides, it's talking about the JavaScript bridge and how it's different from the other ones. And I'm like, Oh my god! I heard about Flutter like six months previous, and I completely disregarded it. I was like, "This is going to be terrible." It's another cross-platform piece of garbage, you know. Like, this is not why I want as an Android developer. And then when he started explaining what it does and how it works, I'm like, "Actually, this is what I've wanted for years. This is really why I want." And um, and I just immediately tried it out that same day. And before I knew it, we transitioned the company up to using Flutter. Um, I think literally within the quarter afterwards. So very fast transition and all our apps since have been flutter apps wow that's awesome and i think you've been doing a lot of the web stuff as well uh what do you feel like has uh have you noticed a big improvement over the uh, past year or so oh definitely so um i actually um i was uh invited to try out flutter web before it was released and give some feedback which it did um and back then it was very well it was separate project right it was a separate um library it was completely separate from the framework and they've integrated into the framework now performance is way better you know they, they, they've they've all those sort of edge cases they've kind of sort of whittled down to, to very few now however when I was uh, I recently required to use it for an actual project of Dev Angels and um, in doing so I found there's some other things that weren't covered so I've put some PRs back into the framework so dealing with things like um Get rid of that annoying hash in the URL. I mean, it makes oh, sense. Yes. Don't get me wrong. However, yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm um, kind of both ways on it. Like, I feel like uh, it's nice because most static websites, you know, single page applications use this. But at the same time, you know, it's bad for linking. I can I can give you exactly one problem that you can actually have. Okay. Apple's. I think. Uh, right. I'm gonna. Quote, uh, this might be a misquote. Yeah. But if I remember rightly, I was implementing Apple signing recently. And it strips off the location oh, from the URL. Wow. So you can't have the hash and the path in as part of the URL when you redirect back after OAuth 2. Right. And that would Which work. is actually yeah. not part of the standard, I don't believe. <laughs> but uh, I might be muddling up there with that with another provider, I'll be honest with you. It's been a while. But um, it's just that kind of nature of those little things where the hash yeah. is meant to be a local thing, not a remote thing. So if you do need to like deep link or link into your app, you do need that kind of direct path manipulation rather than um, uh, what's called uh, location, right? 
so before like you know you can remove the hash from the framework i was actually getting around it by creating you know when you deploy to firebase i would have a redirect so I'd take the redirect and then redirect to another page so then externally i would have my redirect link that would then without a hash that would go then to the the page with a hash so what about numbers of numbers of requests at that point and, and latency and other things so um, so we have a little bit of follow-up actually. Uh, Dart just announced null safety. I know we've been all been waiting for that. So what do you guys think about that? Um, ahead, so, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, they've been working on this for quite some time. I think this is like the feature which pushes the language by, by yeah. quite a bit. Like um, a lot of modern languages, for example, Kotlin. I'm not sure. Swift. If- Swift, yeah, they, they all have uh, the sense of non-nullability. They notice that null pointer exceptions aren't that fun. <laughs> and <laughs> that DAR is also um, implementing this is like a huge step in becoming a asset to Florida. Like a lot of people were complaining, okay, Florida is cool, but DAR, but with this feature and... Wait for it, What's that? Why can't we use Kotlin, right? Yes. Kotlin yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, people were like, will be like, okay, cool, we have Dart. That's a great thing. That's like yeah. the language you want to use. I, I mean, this one of the one of the conversations I had with early adopters when we were doing a Joy-Con London a few years ago was people were saying that, why can't we use Kotlin? And I'm like, well, Google run the entire stack, right? Essentially, I'm run but you yeah. know what i mean like they, they essentially own the entire stack meaning that they can make changes to the language that suits flutter and vice versa so every as we've seen we saw the um oh i mean <laughs> i can't remember his name magnificent bob whatever his name is mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he did the the language changes for the oh i forget what they're called collection expressions i can't remember mm. what they're called and i think that was that that's what they're called where you can put your if statements and your for loops inside of um array yeah. declarations spread operators spread operators as well yeah and uh, that is perfectly what we needed for Flutter. However, mm-hmm. it was a language design change, right? These are the things that we get with, with being able to have the entire stack, right? And again, non-nullability, right? Like having this non-null by default, they can implement that language and, and really like do this overhaul because it is essentially a big overhaul of the entire framework just to support that. Um, actually, I, I'd, I'd submit a PR on date time. Um, so when you're passing it, this is a bit off topic, but when you pass a date time back from, I think it was a Azure backend, it formats the date time with like 10 decimal places uh, for the microseconds and um, uh, Dart only accepts six, right? And just because of the position from 80 bit to 64 bit or something like that. However, the difference is it would fail passing the date time, not just ignore the lower bit, right? Mm-hmm. which is kind of what you want. You don't want it to fail passing. You have to trim the string and then uh, reattach like the time zone and do other weird things <laughs> just to get to pass the date time is ridiculous. So wow. I put a PR in there and it got proved, it got fixed, but I had to, imp- the key here is I had to implement it in the non-nob with the full, as well as the normal uh, tree. There was two different trees active. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case now or not, but um, wow. but yeah, again, like I've tried out, if anyone doesn't know, there's, um, I think it's nullsafety.dartpad.dev. Yes, I think. Yeah, I think it's just part of the regular Dartpad now, right? Because I think I uh, know there's a separate. Like well, to... I don't know. I know they're, they're advertising a separate. Oh, okay, I'm going to check it now. Actually, just because yeah, nullsafety.dartpad.dev. Cool, cool. And uh, you can try out all the null uh, null safety changes, but um, I mean, 
as I was saying, I think um, we were saying that, that that Flutter itself is not null safe by default at the moment. Right? The Flutter, the framework isn't, but Dart and its core SDK is. That's what the, that's what the tech preview brings, right? Mm-hmm. So you still can't build your Flutter apps as non-null by default at the moment. That's going to come in this, yeah. hopefully in the same future, right? But there's still migration work to be done. Like, so, I mean, null has been used and, and has been used in programming for I don't know how many years I've used null right. and had null pointer exception. Trust me, you don't want to even <laughs> think about null problems in, in C and C++ code because then you're talking about especially when you're talking about like triple D references and somewhere there's a null pointer somewhere you're having to deal with. This is a nightmare. Um, but uh, yeah, so so like in Flutter, like uh, raise button, the callback, so you do on press, if you pass null, you'll disable the button, right? Explicit use of null should be frowned upon. It's not, it's perfectly possible, right? So I think the first version of the Flutter framework will probably see is where they just say that can be null, right? I think it's the exclamation mark or question mark you put after the type and yep, just say, oh, optional. This, this optional, yeah. Basically saying this can be null if you want, which you'll probably see. But then I feel like there's a there's a reason for us to then start porting our code to these things like rather than having, i give you a yeah. use case I can think of, You when you log into an app, right, you have might have in your app code where you're logged in and you say, oh, if I have a user object, in my yeah. user stream or something, then I'm logged in. If I have null, I'm not logged in, right? right. The type, the point here is we want to frown away from doing that and instead have a constant value of like user.none. So I have a static constant inside the, your user model called none, which is a blank implementation of user, which has blank strings for names and so on. You can then do a direct comparison because it's a static constant and say, is this object identical to this other object? It is, so it's not logged in right now. So there's never a case we see null on that stream. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the thing that we need to think about when doing non-null by default and trying to, you can always start moving towards that, but that's just a good program practice. You can already do that right now, right? That doesn't involve the new operators. New operators are more about null management, allowing you to use null where you want to. But to be honest, if you can avoid using altogether, why not? And so does this remove the need for using asserts or uh, reduces the amount that we would use them? Because I feel like the Flutter uses that almost always just a check So, so this is actually, this is kind of my curious point because named parameters, right? When you, when you don't specify yeah. named parameters, default to mm-hmm. null. Therefore, all yeah. named parameters mm-hmm. are what default to null. I'm, I've not had enough um, yeah. playing around with, with the, the, the null safety stuff to really look into that in high detail. Like for me personally, when it gets released and when I have to deal with it, I'll deal with it then. <laughs> I know. This, yeah. uh, I just don't have the time to really look that far down the rabbit hole right now. Because, like, do you need to use required at that point? Oh, well, they have the the new. Isn't there? A, there's a new operator late, which solves some issues. Well, no, with that. I mean, uh, for, for specifically for construct, uh, constructor operator, like, do you need a required? Because, like, if you if it's non-nullable, yeah, but the required is just an annotation, right? Yeah, but it, we're using it right now to make sure that it's like you were signifying no, we, that it has to. Well, no, it's just done um, at compile time, right? But at runtime, you can still pass null. That's why you have yeah, those certs, right. right? Yeah, you're right, you're right. So yeah. so the annotation is just there for uh, as a compiler uh, flag, mm. right? As a, as a hint to True. the compiler to say that this should never be null, right? But there's times mm. that's like, that can be done during done... Um, analyzed during static analysis, right? Not right. at uh, a dynamic runtime. But I think yeah. with required, you can still explicitly pass a null and it won't complain, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so that's what the assert catches. Well, um, so, yeah, can you or can it, it's just when you have a variable that's null? I think 
I think required only make sure you know that you actually pass that you specify the parameter. You have to, yeah, that's it. So you, sorry, so required says you have to specify yeah. the named parameter, but it can be null still, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, like these are the things that, you know, that the framework team are going <laughs> to, the Flutter yeah. team itself are going to have to deal with and say, these are the rules that we're now going to run it by. But to be honest, asserts aren't in runtime. They're only in debug. So, you know. Oh, yeah, right. It's not going to have any performance impact. We shouldn't do. So, yeah. I was curious actually. The stats on the the blog post that was pushed out recently was like nineteen percent uh, performance <laughs> performance increase, not speed increase, performance increase. So that performance can obviously. I'm not not trying to mince words here, but but performance means generally like lots of things like memory, speed, CPU usage, you know, frame rates, all sorts of other things. Right? It's not just specifically. Right. How fast your code is run by the CPU, right? But mm -hmm. in truthfulness, like if you don't have to check null or if, or if there's no sort of put it this way, in 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 you end up doing preconditions all the time in, in C code where you're just saying, Oh, it can't be null, it can't be null, essentially the same as what, the way we're using the certs right now, where yep. you 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 you're basically telling it throw an exception if it's null. That's basically what the um, compiler is inserting for us. So that if it does find null at some point, oh, sorry, you do try dereference a null, it will throw an exception. Um, and that's all handled during the processing of the of the dot code itself, the well, the compiled dot code. So, also, yeah. I mean, when I first came from uh, Swift, actually, I I was very much used to the null safety and optional chaining and all that kind of stuff. Got into Kotlin, and then I came to Dart. So I've still been using question mark optional chaining for all the stuff, except for I just have to explicitly make sure I know which ones I expect to be null and which ones not. Do we? I mean, do we want to talk about some of the other Dart features right here? Because I mean that. Uh, yeah, I mean, sure. there is there is that kind of like there is some of those nice things like like having almost a data class. We just have your fields, and then you can do yeah. a, com a constructor with this dot, this dot, this, and just have all your you specify here are my parameters with the this. Um, they're right. all public final. You know, you've got like your static immutable data class. Mm -hmm. Very nice. However, as soon as you want to say I want this to be private, now you can't do that. So you, right, right. So now you end up doing that weird thing where you have a final in your in your uh, finalized after the colon of your constructor. You end up doing the private equals the parameter passed in. You have to pull the types and the parameters again. Like these are little things that feel like these were adjusted. It would make it that bit nicer to program with, but not critical, right? Yeah, you're right. Um, but one of the things I'm going to say this now because you got me in this. It just reminded me. Um, fact. So you can't reference constructors, right? Yeah, you exactly. cannot. Like, there's no way of saying I want to pass a constructor as a method, which I really feel like like you end up having to do a, a static method, right? That then calls the constructor or something like that, pass it in. It ends up just you end up bulking out your coder. So a good example of this is what I do all the time, especially for my service level. I guess we'll get to architecture, but um, a a static init method, right? So I have a pri I have a private constructor. And a static uh, init method that returns a future of that class, right? So the idea here is that I can now initialize stuff asynchronously and then return my instance, right? I have to use a static method because you cannot have an asynchronous constructor in Dart, right? Like it's just not a thing. Even you'd think that that's a factory method, right? I mean, essentially, there's a difference though between a static method and a factory method. A factory method is treated as a constructor, but it's a method of code, right? And it's run before the constructor, so you can get away with doing logic in there, right? And still have final um, 
final class members, right? But then your uh, static method is, is treated as a method, not as a constructor. So, so the two things don't align, and you kind of it'd be, it'd be nice to see uh, asynchronous factory methods, right? So then you can have asynchronous construction. Then it, it, mm-hmm. it, it really would be helpful to I think to a lot of the way that we do stuff in Dart, right? Imagine that you can do a uh, construct things in a chain and then return some sort of logic on them and do that all in like a future stream, right? Sort of a pipeline. Yeah, I like anyway, the way uh, Kotlin does uh, data classes specifically. You can just type data before and it does, uh, you know, yeah. it does your equal operators, your hash code, your, you know, um, your private getters and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's awesome. You can do it now with Dart, but you have to use code generation or. Well, these are some of those. I think that there's a language board, right, on the Dart SDK, yeah. which sort of goes through some of the things. But there are following up on that one as well as. Um, Silk classes, silk unions, yeah. right, all right, those right. kind of good things. A type aliasing, which I can't wait for, to be honest, because there's several times I want to use type aliasing. I'm just like, I don't have this. Oh, versus type def. What, what, is it, what do you mean by type aliasing? So, well, no, you so, see, so type def, and there's a good example of this. Um, I'm not I'm going, I'm going to mince his last name. Luke Pighetti. Pighetti um, okay. Is that his name? I can't remember. He's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, he did this on his Twitter feed recently and it was um, having a mix-in. So you can like define a new class with different mix-ins and you're defining, you can essentially define an alias with these different traits, right? But then you try and do that with just with a normal class. You use the equals operator in between, it doesn't work, right? There's just some inconsistencies in the way it works. Right. And type editing does, does that thing where you can say, I'll give an example of this. Actually, I had this recently. Uh well, one of the things we're missing, right, which I really like, <laughs> this is terrible, what I like from Java <laughs> um, <laughs> was uh, that the enum class, enum was a class, right? It was a, right. It's a base type, but it's also a class. I mean, I could add private member variables to an enum, right? So I have things, a very co- common case for me in terms of, of app development is that you have a set of defined states or things that you return to and from a server, for instance. Now, during the serialization, deserialization process, you're treating that as a as a string, right? Mm-hmm. But then you want to, when you receive that string, put it back into your typed object so that you can look at the type, look at other other related variables to that type. So they might be your private. So for example, you might get back a state that says pending, right? Lowercase, simple string, right? But then you want to say to the user, currently waiting for server feedback, right? So you want to put that string or, or a reference to your localizations for that string in with that in, uh, in with that enum, so they're tightly coupled, so that when you display it to the user and you get back that enum, you can detect, oh, we're in the pending state, and then I want to display a string, yeah. display the one from the enum, or look up the localization from from the one that the enum's given me. So I'm kind of tightly coupling these things together. Mm-hmm. This is essentially like a union, right? Uh, still classes as well can be used for that. So speaking of Kotlin data classes, I, I think it'd be cool to see something in Dart where, you know, we, we have kind of this more uh, flexibility, but a lot of the stuff we're having to do by boilerplate and code generation kind of be cool if like kind of Dart took it on itself. Because like you said, enum with a class, another cool thing about that is you can write actually extension methods onto a class. You can't do that with an enum right now. Um, yeah. Because I've, well, I've wanted to do stuff like that as well. Well, I mean, that's where the so, sorry, that's where type aliasing comes in, right? So in okay. type aliasing, you can say um, a good, good example is yeah, if you want to bind some things tightly, couple some things together, you can create a new class, which is a string, right? So good example, you can't put an extension on a string, right, right now, but if you right. create a new type called uh, server state, right, 
which I is see. a string, I and see. then you could then extend it with other things during runtime. There's lots of ways to couple cool. these things together, but also it's about not misusing extensions because that's one of the other things, yeah. right? Like it's too easy to misuse extensions, and I've seen it already yeah. in several bits of code I've seen, like just throwing extensions around like all over the place and then like like yeah. where these things could have been methods. These things are not – you're not ex- – you're using extension as a hack rather than actually yeah. – Architecting your software correctly. Well, not correctly is the wrong word, but you know, like, 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 yeah. Versus put functional. this way, you don't be looking at a class and going, "Oh, this is the class," and then figuring out, "Oh, runtime." No, it has these other properties that are extension methods. That I have no idea how these, where these things were coming from, right? Yeah, right. Like, uh, I've tightly coupled them together. They should be. I feel like that's where mixing's coming, right? So I feel like there's a use case for all these different ways of doing things, but the right thing for the right job and extensions are there for me personally is to actually extend things out of your control right gotcha so yeah. so for instance if you've got a package coming in from externally or you've got something in the framework that you're trying to extend right for instance one thing i did recently which actually is part of architecture is just to um, extend put extension on stateful widget and stateless widget that has a simple thing like um database repository or database service that is a, a getter right that goes and uses provider of context or whatever to go fetch it, right? So See. instead of having the prov- now, here's the key. So my I'm still using the provider package as essentially an inherited widget, but I'm using it in one file. I'm not sprucing that that provider import all over my application. Yeah. My application has no mm-hmm. clue what provider is because it's only used in the one place. I'm using it where I have a widget that provides things down the tree, and yep. then my my extension that goes and uses provider to fetch them from the current context. Yeah. Also, I've, um, I'm not sure where I'm doing something wrong, but um, when using extensions, I cannot auto import them. Like, I have an extension on something, and <laughs> I know the extension fi- the extension is defined somewhere in my project, but I have to manually import the file. They did add that recently, I believe. However, it only works on named extensions. Oh, nice. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, because that's that, what, that was if always have, a big thing because I knew I had that extension, but I had to manually go in and search for the file where it was in. Yeah, but to be honest, I mean, here's a good, the good example of that that was using export, right? You should be yeah. exporting those extensions, mm, yeah. right? So that your import, when you import like uh, certain, certain something from your app, you want to bring extensions along with it, well, then export them. Mm-hmm. From that import, does that kind of make sense? So that way, your yeah. the extensions come along with anything that uses that that that's, that type of system. Sometimes you have stuff on external libraries. For example, if you want to have an extension on DateTime, for example, you cannot export DateTime with your True. thing in one one thing. So, but what you can do, what you can do, is create one <laughs> file which exports DateTime and exports your your. No, seriously, you can export DateTime and export your extension. But you have to keep in and mind when, to import that file instead of. Yeah, the, but when you do your auto import, it will give you the options of both. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. That's cool. Right? And then you get to choose the other one, right? But I mean, yeah, sure, nothing's perfect, right? I'm not going to go there. I mean, these are all, there's so many improvements that can be made, but this is all about, I mean, it all takes time and what is worth the changes. And these aren't worth any changes, right? This is all about using the language effectively, right? Mm-hmm. This should be a new book, Effective Dart. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this kind of brings us into the, what we wanted to talk about today, which is, you know, like state management for Flutter. And um, specifically, we want to talk about, you know, like what are the, why do we want to choose a state management solution and how can it help us? Because I feel like, you know, especially, you know, it feels like 
you know, when I first started with Flutter, it was like beta two. It's like, you know, we had all these things thrown around. It's like a oh, scope model and streams and block. And it's like, oh, well, block is crazy big and there's all this boilerplate and there's Redux and, you know, you have to do all this and they all have their trade-offs. And it's like, all of a sudden we went from like crazy, uh, just you write a bunch of code to the, all the packages are writing all the code for you, but like, you don't, you can't quite predict what's going on. Some you can. So yeah, just a lot of different things going on right now. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, someone asked me the other day, what one do I think is better? What, what, um, what state management solution would I recommend that it's like choose your poison, right? Because the, yeah. the term is actually incorrect, right? I mean, we've been talking about this for a while. State management is because you in 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 Flutter specifically, you're talking about UI state, right? And managing your state of of your application and its UI because mainly the UI is reactive and that's what builds and then that sort of affects your logic in some right. fashion. But what you want to do is I found it, I mean, I have to remember early on in the very flutter early days, even myself was guilty of this, of just inlining every function as part of my, you know, my uh, widget, widget tree and just, yeah, mishmash of, of code. And it's more about sort of separation of concerns, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think separation of concerns is actually one of the solid principles of design from mm-hmm. Uncle Bob, but um, it's one I go to as well, that dry and keep it simple and all those sort of standard things. But they're just, just sort of, things to memoirs to kind of just to keep you sort of directed at how you should be doing stuff, right? So it's when you're doing anything object orientated, it's always about separating off, naming things appropriately, structuring things to communicate with each other so that when you come in and modify them, you're not having to trace down and refactor and just rewrite huge swaths of your code. You can just keep it in one location. Yeah. That's really sort of like that sort of in class and com- uh, sort of encompassing your logic in one place or your, 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 yeah. your code in one place. And I think that's, really what it is, which is architecture, right? That's how you architect your the classes of your application to interact with each other to produce your desired result of your app, right? So to yeah. produce produce that business logic. So when we talk about these patterns, like originally the patterns that we were seeing were talking about inherited widget, right? Which is just reaching up to get state from other widgets, right? Because the widgets would be derived from the logic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of it, and then here's a key. Anytime you interact from the widget tree, you're always using an inherited widget. It doesn't matter if you use a provider, scope, model, right. any of these, they're all based on inherited model. I, this this is actually, okay, okay, most of them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, okay, I can MobX, right, and other things. But um, the, the point here is why does inherited widget exist in the first place, right? What, why is it yeah. trying to solve? Do you know, Rodi? Do you know Norbert? You know, it's uh, it's just a tree data structure. You want to have your logic, you know, where you can grab from one instance of a node to another yeah. side of like. It's just to, just to shorten traversal. Yeah. Right. So in terms of, it's a time saver and a performance gain. That's that's it's, it's so so basically what happens is you your it will go up the the first time right your your access up. They, they have changed this logic recently and it does work slightly differently. So I'm not going to get this perfectly yeah. right, correct. But the initial, the idea is like whenever you need to look up the tree, right, you use your current context, right, your build context, and all you've got your, they rename them. So they're now all find by, find widget by this and find state by that and find inherited widget by this and um, depends on that widget. So I won't go into, there's a whole long list of them. However, they're all about tree traversal, right? So they go up the tree. Now, if you look at those functions, so if you go into um, the Flutter framework and look at the element class, element is what implements build context. 
right? So every build context you see is actually your uh, element for your widget, right? And what it will do is it literally traverses up to its parent and says, is parent um, this type, or let's say you're looking at widgets. So it looks at, is parent element widgets this type? No, then go up to next parent and next parent and next parent. So you go this ancestor path, right? Now, the key is going up the tree is always less expensive than going down the tree because you do a non-exhaustive search up the tree. You're going to your direct descent uh, um, ancestor, yep. right? If you're going down the tree, then you have a depth pass or breadth pass search in terms of going down yeah. to every edge leaf node of the tree. Yeah. So, well, so going up is logarithmic, so or even less, actually. Yeah. But the key being here is if you go up the tree, right, you're still looping over. You're still doing those if checks. So if you every single time you needed to get that parent state or class, you would have to do that traversal. That's a waste of time, right? Waste of waste of a performance, especially during build or other things that you need to get things done in your frame limit, right? So then you kind of go down and go, well, okay, how do I solve this? Well, if you're trying to solve yourself, you can solve this yourself, and that is, oh, I will create a hash map, right? And I will will key my type, right? And then I will store the value as being whatever I get from up the tree. Now, uh, the first time I get it, I store in that hash map, and now each time I want to get a different type, I store in the hash map. That's literally how most of these sort of state things work, right? However, they do the the next thing, which is that hash map is registered further up the tree. So if the, if that type changes, it updates the hash map and notifies the children to rebuild. So really, truthfully, there's two things to this. Is one is to performance going up the tree, and also to notify the children that they need to be rebuilt further down the tree without rebuilding the entire chain of widgets, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a performance win, right? And it's just a, a different way of doing it. It's the reactive model. So so that's inherited widget, right? Scope model is just, so mm-hmm. so inherited widget was was inherently untype safe, shall we say. There's a, um, there's some few sort of uh, problems around using it. And it wasn't, it's not easy to get your head around it even now, right? So, so scope model came out. Scope model by um, the Beardosaurus himself, uh, right. Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love calling him that. It's just every time I see him with that nice beard of his, it's like, how, how did he do that? That's amazing. Um, the upkeep on that thing, blimey. Anyway, the scope model uh, is it, sort of like just giving you that nice interface on top and then giving you sort of like this idea of a model that you can then notify when a field changes and it updates the widget. Essentially the same thing. And then uh, there's a few, um, I'm trying to remember, there were a few other things that came out. In fact, I think the first Redux time... Redux was out. Sorry? I said Redux came out right, right around Redux, that time yeah. too. Yeah, Redux. Now, I'm, I'm, I really love the notion of a unidirectional data flow of immutable objects. I mean, that yeah, is same. Like, like you have a direct idea of the flow of your application. And one of the killers of most apps, in fact, I know back in the day when, <laughs> oh my goodness, uh, like 10 years ago when I was first doing Android apps, was that state, uh, like having mutable state and, and changing the properties was leads to literally every single bug you can imagine. And by exactly. just changing things to having immutable models solved so many issues because it meant that you didn't have the possibility of... Um, not knowing that something had changed, like you have a direct notion that the truthfully inside the um, it's about the Java engine, it happens in Dart, and most of the object oriented systems is each object has your ID. Uh, it's 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 uh, literally it's unique identifier in the in in the system when it's been allocated, and that by default is the hash code, right? 
So that's mm. so if you compare two hash codes of two objects that don't have an equals method, you're essentially saying are these two things identical, right? By reference, right? By well, uh, yeah. I mean, as an object, it's by re it's, it's passed by reference, but still, you're talking about the value, the, Im yeah, the I mean, implementation like, as in of they that have class. the same reference. Yeah, yeah, like, but, as in but they both exist in the same location. Yeah. 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 So, so the anyway, anyway, I digress. But the the point here is that uh, scope model, sort of, uh, even off the playing field, Redux comes in and we get this unidirectional data flow. We get the Redux behaviors, which work well with React, so that kind of brings another lot of people into Flutter in terms of React developers and so on. Like they they're used to using Redux, and a lot of people have been using Redux in their apps. Mm -hmm. Then you start talking about RX, right? Using RX with Redux and that kind of sort of sort of brings in a new wave of people and a new way of doing things because there's several things that are difficult to do, not impossible, but difficult to do with streams in Dart. Yeah. Then Rx came in using it with observables. And then finally, I believe as of, now I'm not going to quote the right version, I think it was 023 of, of Rx Dart, it now uses streams directly. So you can now use non-observable base patterns. So now stream, because of extension methods, it now has all of the standard sort of flat map on a stream. Mm -hmm. So you can just flat map the direct data type and not have to worry about like a wrapping every one of your data types with an observable pattern, right? And having the next done and all that kind of jazz. The anyway, back to back to back to Redux. Yeah, yeah. So so we had Redux and then what was the other history? We had Redux um Mobex came out. Sorry? About no Mobex was after, but provider, provider, right? So provider I think is the next big leap. I mean well, there the, was trust block me for sure. Sorry? There was block for sure. Block. No, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Block and Redux are around the same. I think they came out around the same time because I remember lots of conversations were about which one should I choose, right? Yeah. But again, Block. <laughs> I personally have never followed Block to the letter of the specification, right? Yeah, same. In terms of, <laughs> I don't use syncs a lot of the time, right? To, to send data to the blocks, right? I don't let it reveal a sync and then push it up into a stream. Great for when you want to link blocks together and have stuff streaming through the pipeline, right? We reveal a sync and you can attach things together, right? But when you're talking about UI actions, I've never gone that route of, yeah, depends on what I'm doing, right? But I never really go that route of having a a value or an event or something that I'm passing over a stream to the to the block and then having the block churn that change its state. I'm listening to the stay on the front end and then that returns back the uh, the new data or the update state with which contains whatever. So, so yeah. So one thing which is also uh, interesting to talk about in this context is um, apps have a very specific way of handling data, and that's the reason why we need those things like streams, Redux, um, and that's because apps are very reactive. Like every uh, possible configuration, all the data um, is based off of events. A user taps a button, something comes from a server, some sort of response, something is loading. So most parts of an app are asynchronous and very data-driven. If that wouldn't be the case, like for example, in servers where you have one request which is coming in, it is being processed, it's being piped through a lot of systems, you wouldn't need all this uh, reactive uh, behavior. But for apps, um, everything is interconnected and reactive. And that's also mainly the reason like um, why we actually need these kinds of streams, why we need some sort of pattern which observes data instead of gonna, um, setting I'm, I'm it. Gonna, I'm going to have to disagree just slightly. Not that it's not what it is right now for Flutter, but more about apps in general, right? So we're talking yes. about if you're talking about Flutter apps because the reactive UI, it mm -hmm. makes sense to have 
No, no, I'm streams. talking about apps in general. Like I've been doing Android before too, and I know having mutable data, which you have to keep track of yourself. Like when is it changing? I have to you know. Still have, yeah, but what I'm trying to say is you still have immutable data, you can, but, you, but you don't have to have streams necessarily, like, like simple patterns of like a holder pattern where you're hold, you have one object that is constant that holds onto a value, such mm-hmm. as a reference, and then that has a notification when the value changes. These are other patterns that can be used. Yes, but those but, are. But, I, I digress. I digress. Sorry. Definitely, yeah. So basically the idea is instead of having to manually keep track of when do I have to rebuild, when do I have to show something new to user, we lay off the responsibility of uh, knowing when we have to rebuild to the actual part which is causing the rebuild. I think there's also an interesting point. It's going to take me back, but when doing Android a long time ago, when Rx Java came out on Android mm-hmm. and we, we started going with uh, Java 7 lambdas, right? Yes. It suddenly became apparent that you could then use uh, Rx effectively inside of inside of your Android app because you didn't have to do these anonymous uh, class instances all over the place. You could just use lambda expressions. Mm-hmm. And um, the power really comes from setting up a pipeline, right? So, it, so essentially setting up your stream nodes, having your flat maps and your, your different manipulations of the data as it flows through the pipeline and having... Essentially, you could express the entire backend of your app as an interconnection of all of the pipes of a stream, right? I mean, it would be nuts, yes. right? And trust me, I've seen people do it and try yes, it and all sorts, too. right? But, and you go through a phase when you're trying RX, you're trying to do these kind of nice little cool things, right? Yes. I feel like there's, there's like using anything effectively is don't, like like they say, taking anything too much is a bad thing, right? Like having too much coffee <laughs> is going to be a bad thing, right? The point here is like doing any one of these things over the top is always a bad thing. So I saw someone talking about, this was a while ago, when RX, actually when RX first came out in, in Flutter, they were trying to make all of their widgets stateless. <laughs> yeah. And having like all the state pushed over to into the Redux data stores and having all this kind of like, it was just like, mm-hmm. in general, the, the principle sounds nice, right? But then you're, you end up doing things like there might be state that only has to exist for that widget. It's, it's part of the UI state. At that point, it depends. And it depends the place it should be located is inside the state for widget, if that kind of makes sense. It's not something that you should be putting it outside of this. I mean, where else is it going to – you could back a class to every widget, right? <laughs> so every widget can have a backing class with its logic. But then it's just a base class with – functions in it and state right with variables but you're just moving the problem right it's nice for organization don't get me wrong but that's again that's architecture that's not really the solution anyway like bottom navigation i've seen people create a block just for the bottom navigation bar and i'm like you know it's like a self-responsible widget there it's like only ui navigation if you want to change the index do it with the constructor and a did update widget you know it's so much easier that way there's yeah there's a point here where you're working against the framework's I mean, the framework comes with tools, so you don't have to use any of these patterns, right? Essentially, right? The base things are all there, like we just said with inherited widget. But we, I mean, go back. So, so we, I mean, I have these different patterns, right? So we said Redux provider is one we haven't spoken about. So provider is the, to me, the de facto standard now in terms of instead of using inherited widget, I go for provider, right? Yes. Mainly because it does all that hard work for me, and it's been heavily tested. It's got those stuff, and I don't have to deal with some of the minutiae around setting up an inherited widget. So you have to set up uh, another class, essentially you've got scope class and some other things. And also the fact that provider is really, it's scoped model on steroids in terms of that you have all those yeah. other providers that take things so you can have a change notifier provider. So when the change notifier is 
it listens to that so that when the when the change in fire is notified, it will rebuild the widget. So you get all these other uh, patterns of yeah that all these other libraries on your or the way you structure your code can all depend on that sort of provider system, right? Well, there's also another type too, which I I use this data or state management solution for up until probably about six months ago, and that was using um, more or SQLite on the back end having a unidirectional flow where all my, I'm reading the data directly on the widgets so that you have the stream listing on individual stuff and then just using like a block or something to update the database um, in a single layer. But because that, that, that management was also pretty popular, but um, yeah, I, I just curious your thoughts on that too. Cause like, you know, that's, it also, you know, obviously depends on the data, but you know, if you have a structured data kind of approach, it, uh, it you know kind of can be nice to have like that unidirectional flow that way too. Oh, for sure. I mean, it really depends on what you're doing because I, to be honest, I would keep. It's about layering your application architecture. Then, right for me, so I might have my front end UI deal with streams of my own data types in my application. I'm never going to pass a document snapshot right from Firestore to my front end of my application, right? Because now suddenly my entire application is now dependent on Firestore, right? So if I need to refactor right. Firestore out, I want to switch it to my own API, I'll switch it, I want to put a caching layer in with SQLite, for instance, then yeah. I, I just kicked myself, right? You know, it's not it's not going to be an easy change to make, right? right so right. you want to control each layer and keep each layer of your application independent. Right. So that kind of goes into like... I mean, for for what I was doing back in, so it's quite funny. What I was doing back in the Android days was using uh, what we call repository service model. Um, I'm yeah. trying to remember if there's some other better names for this, but this is the way I remember it, right? And it's that notion of having uh, units of responsibility called repositories, right? They they are responsible for some unique factors. So think of it like a block, if you will, but some some uh, either some data type or some manipulation of of something within your app. So let's say you had. Um, Let's say you're a music player and you had albums, right? So you'd have an albums repository, right? Yeah. Now, all your front end, whenever you need an album, you need to get like an album cover or an ID, whatever it might be, you're going to go to the repository to, to deal with that um, data type, right? Or, or manipulate albums in some fashion, right? But then the albums might have to go off to Firestore. The albums repository might have to go to Firestore to actually go retrieve it from the database or go then go off right. to Google Cloud Storage to retrieve the, the cover URL so I can pass back a in-memory one and cache it in memory and whatever I want to do. But that's all business logic on the back end of your application. It never touches the UI, right? The idea is on the UI, I, do, I get an album model and it has all the fields I need to display my on my screen, right? So essentially almost think of it like a view model in that sense, right? But that's the pattern I feel like is, is just the most flexible rather yeah. than having suddenly like, you obviously essentially it's a bit abstract, but you can also then go one level deep and have something between repository and your UI and have controllers, right? That sort of notion of I have a, a top level controller for my application, which kind of wires some stuff up or essentially a block. Or So it's another model I've done where you have blocks, repositories and services and the blocks just provide yeah. that bit of business logic in between your widget layer, do the reactivity part and then go off into the, to the repository layer or the service layer to do things, right? But the idea is that you have a repository layer, which is, like as I said, like albums. And then above that, if you had Firestore, that would be a service layer, right? Your choice as to whether, if you're doing this model that I use, is 
if you want the service layer to return back data models from your class, or if you want the repository, or if you want the repository layer to also have access to Firestore in that fashion, right? So it gets the document snapshots, and then you deal with the mapping from from essentially from uh, serialized data type or transmission data type to your local model data type. If that's going to happen at the repository layer or the service layer, that depends on your application. Um, I personally try and keep two sets of models, right? So you have your model that you're using uh, within your data, within Firestore, within your database, that might be IDs for other objects, right? But then when it comes to your object on the front end, you want to link those two objects together. So you might do two fetches or, or maybe have it in cache. So you want to do two SQL queries and bind those things together, and then you're passing off the front end. So the front end has what it needs uh, for, to display that data for what it needs to manipulate that data, and that's what your application does, right? So, so really... The trade-off, and the other trade-off here is that your uh, repository and service layer must not. You need to keep it completely fl flutter-free, right? So right, you never right. have providers in those. You don't deal with any of the. If you're dealing with um, the flutter, um, any of the flutter sort of framework in your backend, then I feel like that's probably not where it's supposed to be because flutter is like your UI, your front end, right? Right, right. I try mm -hmm. and keep them off. However, saying that, there is one dependency which you can't do at the moment, that is change notifier or value listenable. Those things are in Flutter Foundation. So, you know, you're not going to import just those. So do that kind of import show, you know, show value listenable. So you're just importing that one thing. You're not going to be yeah, right. chanced into using those classes from Flutter, which you shouldn't be using. Like a good example of this, right? I, this is just silly, but it's a good example of when these, these practices are important. Color. Color as a class is a UI Dart specific attribute, right? If you want to now take this model object or this other piece of code and put it on your back end and use it in your server side or do some other stuff with this back end piece of business logic or move stuff around, suddenly you've got dependency on Flutter, right? So instead, what you should be doing is storing the integer representation, right? Which is your, which is actually what color is in in, in computer terms. A color object just literally hides an int value inside it, right? With some methods, right? There's a good example of an alias type, right? If you could do an alias type, a color would be a good example of doing it, right? You could have color be an alias of integer with the with the methods on top. So you're extending, essentially extending. It's not really what it's for, but I digress. Anyway, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, back to the point here is that that a good use of that is putting color in your front-end models, but not in your back-end models, right? So what you're sending to and from the server is either a string or an integer or some other representation of your color, and then you transition, then you convert between your 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 meta type or, or, or wherever you're tra transmitting, serializing back and forth from your services into your model that you use for the front-end, and then you convert it to a color then, right? This gives you right. that layer of control and complexity that you can get around, right? And then you can prepare your front-end models however you want in your repository layer. Anyway, I digress, sorry. Yeah, I think, by the way, uh, and just a quick uh, note on the models and repositories and services, I think uh, Arc's command was a state management solution that came out that was um, kind of all built around that, specifically on top of streams. Yeah, yeah, so uh, Thomas's uh, Arc's command with uh, to use Arc's Dart and, long, and also use along with get it and kind of that kind of stuff, so it's a yep, sort of exactly. package. He came out with RxVMS as well, which uses Rx command as well. Um, personally, I've not. I've, I've I've actually worked with uh, on a few projects with Thomas actually, and uh, we've used those patterns. Personally, I feel there's use for these things where sort of essentially for me, RxVMS is more like a node, right? So you so 
it's it's kind of a node for a block, is it? It's like a front end for a block, which gives you a stream for when it's loading, for when state changes, and you kind of right. like you have these streams. Now it means that you can connect multiple blocks, multiple of these RSVMX blocks almost together, so you can have loading go from one as an input to another. So once one's finished, another one starts, and you can have RX commands being sent and transmitted between these things. So anyway, anyway um, it's it's yeah. a nice system, but I find it. My, for me personally, I find most of these things overly complicated, right? Like keep it simple, yeah. right? Exactly. Like, like for me, block is overly complicated for most of my most of my use cases. Like I don't want to have to go. I feel like I'm putting extra boilerplate in the same as Redux. I end up putting way more boilerplate into my applications for 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 not that much gain, right? I feel like don't get me wrong, use a pattern and use it throughout your. App- application but it doesn't mean you can't yep. use multiple things together like you can use provider with redux right like the two things are not like don't have to be yeah. separated you don't have to you can't i mean in the end architecture all of this is to make code for you easier if you write good code which you can edit fast which you um can modify um understand and build on top of which doesn't use any kind of architecture but just mutable web variables that's fine if it works, but most often than not, it doesn't work. People get confused, <laughs> bugs happen. And just keeping as much as simple um, is, in my opinion, key. Like if you have a stateful widget, which has some logic which is very encapsulated, which doesn't have to be connected to our blocks, to streams, put it in a widget, in a stateful widget, use that state. You don't have to use streams and all that stuff. But once it gets interconnected with your other system, it fetches data from that, uh, it combines it with some data from there, suddenly this simple widget, which should have just taken one second to skim over and understand, requires a lot of uh, mental capacity to understand. You have to go through your project and look there. Okay, make sure you don't break something there. Um, So in regard to boilerplate, if the boilerplate helps you to reduce the mental strain on understanding this component, it's great. But if you have something simple, which boilerplate code adds on top to, and like it makes you feel uncomfortable looking at the code. I know this feeling if you have this code, which you really it's don't want to touch. Bad smell code, right? Yes. This, this code's got bad smell to it. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes it could be good architecture code, but just over-engineered, like, it's solid, good written code, but it's like this simple feature which you just want to edit and you have to look at these two different yeah, places. I mean, the other thing to mention here is is testing, right? Like like these yeah. architectures and patterns all afford you to be able to test them, right? So so the case in, in point there is if you need to be able to test that piece of logic, make sure you have it doesn't matter if that you're that you're not using block, right? Because test it a different way. But my point here is just, just make sure that that testing is part of that whole whatever architecture come up with. You know, you need to make sure that you're you're covering all those edge cases that you that you might not possibly think of at runtime. Yeah, yeah, especially and also I think. Um, not just testing, but be able to debug. Like if uh, like a user has an issue, I think that's a really cool feature of block in Redux, for example. You can actually replay the state of the error of what they had. You can see all the events leading up to that and everything at the whatever was happening at the time. In fact, I did something similar in um, it wasn't Redux, but I did something similar, and that is um, a ni- nice tool that you can do is to keep a log of the last X 
transactions, if you will, or whatever uh, events that occurred within your application. And these can just be any event you like, right? Just just imagine they're things that have occurred, like oh, the, the the app went and fetched like the list of albums, right, from from a repository. Now that's an event. You log that event, so you have a local log within your application. And it's a series of log entry items, right? And then what happens when a crash occurs, you can now collect that up, serialize it into a um, JSON array or into, into into a text block, and that gets dumped over to your, your exception capture, crash capture, error reporting system. And that gives you that kind of event log of what happened. This is not just Redux is what I'm trying to get, right? Like, like yep. you know, and, and the same goes for... Yeah, there's lots of these things around. Like, like, like nothing. You're you're not limited. But one of the reasons why I really like Flutter and Dart is the limitations are gone. Yes, you have no idea. I don't think any anyone that hasn't used Android as long as I have for that ten year period and knows. It's quite funny. Someone asked me a bit like why I can't remember what it was. It was like why something happens in Android the way it does. I'm like, oh, that's because in version one it did this, you know, <laughs> and it's still there to this day. And it's like. There's these, so it's almost archaic, right? In terms of a game, it's an operating system. It has to be, and it's one of the reasons why they didn't put their move to using the support library, right? And 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 yeah. Android X and all this is because they don't have to put the the widgets in the framework anymore, where they would you wouldn't get those functions, and it was such a pain to have to backwards compatibility and having to say, oh, if you don't have this function, you should use this other function. Or I'll 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 put my own um, polyfill in its place. To, to perform those necessary features to do something that the platform now contains as pointless. I might as well just do it in my own application at that point, right? Yeah. So that's where their sort of compact libraries came from and all this kind of support stuff. But the entire system is still limited, like like just trying to deal with like resources and resource qualifiers and the ordering of resource qualifiers and how it's going to select the right resource on Android is just just mind-boggling a lot of the time, right? And you end up I remember a lot of the time in some big applications I worked on, I ended up doing type alias, uh, resource aliasing, which is when you basically add a fake uh, XML tag, which is a resource tag, which basically just directs to another resource. So you can get around the limitations of the of the resource selection. So on the specific use case for the specific language in this locale, and blah, 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 then I want you to use this very specific layout and not the default one or something, right? Oh, wow. Like, Crazy stuff. Where in when something in Dart I'm, uh, and doing Flutter, I'm like, oh wow, just assets. I can put them in any folder I want. I can structure yeah. them however I want. I'm, I'm free. And it's like, yeah. like this. The same goes with code. It's like people, it's kind of interesting because it's kind of two fundamental patterns, right? People come to and uh, um, people come to Flutter and Dart and like localization. How do I do it? What 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 pattern must I use? What what however you want. Yeah. Whereas the answer is is as long as you get a string, load it from a JSON file on your assets. You know, download yeah. it from a server. You have the freedom to perform those things however you want, right? And to do them yeah. however you want. Compile time, runtime, you name it, you can do it. The freedom is there. Whereas on Android, it's like, no, you must do it with the, the XML language options. You must do it like this. And if you don't want to do it like that, you have to implement the entire framework yourself and override a load of wid- widgets and, 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 you know, views and how you do all this. It's like, yeah, but, sorry, digress. But you get my point. It's that freedom. But... Even like having the freedom is great, but sometimes having too much freedom could be a curse too. Like, you know, when there's so many options, like especially if you're new, you're coming there and everybody's just telling you, okay, do whatever works for you. And you're like, I have no idea what works for me. <laughs> so, it's, um, there's a name for that, um, information overload or that yes. kind of like, it's kind of like there's so many options, I'm, I don't know where to turn. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right, that is the problem. Right, that we have yeah. in Flutter and Dart a lot of the time is like 
like we talk about like people this really where that question comes from what what state management solution should i use is like there's so many to choose from there's so much stuff to do not under, understanding it right as a as a as a principle as an like the fact that it's more or less architecture right it's not about the term state management is really the wrong name for it. It's architecture a lot of the time, right? For, for us, it's yeah. more about the state management is just a tiny little bit of uh, traversing this, the tree, the widget tree, to get to the to your your widget state, right? Essentially, that's where state management came from. It's that kind of manipulation of, of your UI state. But truthfully, like it's like block isn't that, right? Block isn't state management. Block is block is an architecture pattern, right? Like like it's yeah. a way of dealing with your UI, right? Same goes for providers is inherited widgets like they're kind of just, just traversing the tree and tree into providing some of that sort of extra stuff that we kind of want but anyway i digress right so sorry well also you know uh with that too people you know have all these things when they come to flutter and they, they see these options but you know one thing that i've been doing recently is i i just ask them straight up okay what's the data doing like how is the data flowing yeah. because nine times out of ten the data decides the state management solution. If you're building a graphics application, like I did with uh, Widget Studio, I'm not going to be using SQLite and all, all this kind of stuff to store all these individual things. Most of it's going to be in memory. Most of it's going to be some sort of serialization. And uh, I mean, I use value notifiers to update individual things. But then, if I'm building, you know, a business application, I'm going to be using some sort of SQLite or you I mean, know, I using something like that. So one thing I just thought about inherited, we, we kind of forget inherited model, which was added later on in the game. Yeah. Um, also used, I think, by scope model in the end for its model stuff. And there's a few other places used. Um, I, I'm not sure if Remy's using it, but I know the new select does essentially the same thing where you can essentially uh, look yeah. at when a specific field or value has changed rather than having to rebuild on whenever an object changes. So you get that kind of fine, finer level of, of control. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but most of this is, is just about the question I always ask people is like trying to ask, they ask a question like, I'm trying to think of, how, how do I position a widget? Like, how can I position yeah. a widget, a specific X, Y coordinate? And you're like, but what are you trying to do? And they kind yeah. of say, no, I'm trying to position a widget. No, 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 no. no. That's your solution. But what is yeah. your problem you're trying to solve? And when they explain the problem that they're trying to solve, it's like, no, 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 no. Do it like this. This is the reactive way of doing it. You should put this widget in there. You should put a line in there. You can animate your line, and that will give you a best, yeah. smoothest way of doing it. And no matter what size the device is, it's going to like traverse the entire screen. You're no longer dealing with pixel coordinates, right? Like yeah. these, these just it's just ways of thinking about this. Is the key that one of the reasons why Flutter is just to me a good thing, right? But it's also it's a good and bad thing, right? The fact of uh, it's so different. That it solves a lot of the problems that we've been having. So it's like if I was to do, if I was to be on the team that wrote Android again, and we had a chance to like just that's it, that's it. We're just going to kill Android right now, and we're going to rewrite Android. No, no. The point is, like, like Android ten or whatever version, right, is going to be a ground up rewrite of the entire Android system. How are we going to do it? Some of the principles, at least, of Flutter are the ones that I'm going to be choosing for for doing some of this stuff because of those of, of the way it really brings the. The, the developer experience of making apps forward, right? Where it needs to be. And that kind of sort of goes back to that point of, now um, I've lost my train of thought. Well, I would just say real quick, you know, it's nice that, you know, people, a lot of people that are kind of on the fence of Flutter don't realize that in three years, Flutter can still be whatever it wants because it's not tied to Android or iOS. And right. I think that's really cool because right. because the state management solution is you build it how you need it. Like, 
you know, we don't depend on the update cycle. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I love and chose Flutter was because I can have my same application on iOS 8. I can have it on KitKat and like the lowest Android and not have to use the libraries or depend on any UI mean, there. It's an interesting point, right? One of my selling points that I, I had at one of these Android conferences, because I think I am an Android developer. I, I look at the crowd of people at these Android conferences because, I was you, you know what I mean? I feel yeah. like, like, I'm not trying to like, like, there's no sort of realization that if you want to use it, use it. If you don't want to use it, don't use it, right? I don't care. But I want you to try because once you try, then you might realize what the benefits are, right? Like hot read and hurry start. Just, I mean, oh my God, like I was waiting, yeah. like I would spend so much of my day waiting for Greater Build to have no <laughs> idea, right? Like a picture of like a, a programmer at his computer desk with a skeleton, it's a skeleton, you know, like with a <laughs> cup of coffee. It's kind of, kind of for like me most of the days. So I'm just sitting there just, just, just waiting for a program. Right? It's waste of time. Like you're not learning or doing anything. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then, for of course, though, too. It was really bad. <laughs> no, but this is it. And then suddenly, like, you suddenly get oh, this hot reload and hot restart thing. And then suddenly, like, whoa, do you mean I just hit save? Yeah. And I click on the button again, and it performs different code. I'm like, my blow. Without right? navigating to the screen. And it's, it's like, you get to stay. You don't have to, like, refill out the form. You could just yeah. update the field. Yeah. I mean, like, the, this kind of, like, process. I mean, I have to say, one of the things that's so underutilized. And I want to tell this to people because a lot of people don't know this. Re- reassemble. Reassemble is a function on Stateful Widget that gets called when you hot reload only during development, right? Meaning that you can make your widgets react during development, that how they would not react during. So you can have it reload a widget uh, or, or an object from your back-end database, right? So you don't have to do hot restart. So those instances where you go, oh, we didn't get the right state, or it's got this old thing, oh, I have to hot restart. Right, reassemble fixes those issues. Right, so so that's what the people need to think about. When, when you get those issues, reassemble is your first thing to go to and say, "What can I do during reassemble that's going to make my development life experience, you know, my development experience of building this form or building this sort of front end system easier?" That that's that's what comes to zone. I haven't used it yeah. before. I mean, this is it, right? Like 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 it's one of these underutilized features. I tell you can potentially yeah. save a lot of time, yeah. Because at least at the very minimum, you could just start with like just calling the init method over again. Yeah, Because that exactly, usually right? fix a lot. So so all you need to do is a lot of time is cancel whatever streams and restart your streams. Whatever you were doing in init, so cancel them and then call init state again. Mm. Dispose in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dispose in init essentially, right? But yeah. obviously there's there's um, side effects to doing that in terms of you're calling the superclasses and you don't know if you're mixins and what else is going on, right? But my point here being that it's a method, right? And you get to do whatever you want in that method. And it happens, it gets called during hot reload on every widget, on every stateful widget. Speaking of which, I think it's a good time to mention that, yes, there is K-debug mode now, constants that people don't realize. And you can check to see if you're in profile mode or release mode. So oh, yeah, also yeah, in your yeah. code, a lot of people don't know about that. And just like you can do if you're on web and stuff like that. So, so it, it's K-debug, right? It's lowercase K, capital D, debug, right? One word. Yeah, and that's the that's saying no if you're in debug. Oh my God, do you know how, how I was doing it before for years? Before Asserts? I knew that? I can't remember. When did that come out? Like a year ago now? I, I don't know, it's a while ago. The kit, no, yeah, yeah. We we do the cert. You set a boolean flag and you return that boolean flag. So it's because asserts are only kept for debugs. You know, if it mm-hmm. returned true, you're in debug. Now that was the way of doing it. I was so frustrated, nice. and then suddenly to to have a all it is is an environment variable, right? It's a yeah. dart defined essentially, right? That gets sent across and is detected. But yes, is the brilliant. code which you wrap in that if statement being uh, cut out, like optimized out? Because I think with assert, the actual code which you have in there is being thrown away. Now that is a good point. Um, I believe mm. 
you know what you've just you, you have just brought up a point there so so during compilation um the string from environment i believe is a constant expression so it should be optimized out case, right but i'm not sure now you mention it you know hmm. so so one of the interesting points to make which is something that actually someone said to me the other day was if i build my flutter web app with skier right you do the extra dart to find flags whatever build in release mode how I'm not specifying that flag when I run it, right? So how does it know? I usually because, specify it when I do release mode. No, but the key point here is, is no, 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 what I'm trying to say is once it's been built. Oh, once it's been built. Gotcha. So, so this is my point. So, so the dark code, when it runs, if you know, mm. if you look at like the way that works, right? In the, in the Flutter web framework, it does a, it literally does one of these like string from environment variable. Is this environment variable for the dark defined set? Yes then choose this code path, else choose this other code path, right? Yeah. Now, the key here is that those things are done as overrides to the normal process environment variables. Yeah. Right? I, I might well, be wrong, but that's from the, what I remember. On iOS and Android, when you and especially macOS, when you run a, uh, a defined variable, it actually update, updates the generated config with that new variable set to whatever value. So then exactly. at release mode, it just reads from the environment. Yeah. Yeah, but my point here is it's part part of the comp- compilation process compiled yeah, yeah, into your application, right? right? So, so, so uh, uh, during deve- it's one of those interesting things during development mode it, it's dynamic, but during release yeah. it's it's baked in, right? Yeah, that process. Yeah. But my my interesting point here is because it's baked in, does it get the tree shaking side of the compiler right? Does it does it strip out those code parts that's no no longer ever going to travel down? Because those are baked in, I'm not sure, and I think that's what Noble was getting. At. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Be interesting. Yeah, it would be nice if they could also throw in, uh, like you know, the version that your app is on from the inside the compilation process. Um, compilation process for so, you know your variable. I know they do okay, that so, for the release mode, but yeah. <laughs> so you know, there's build underscore version. I think is the widget. That's uh, right. Is the is the package. And what it does? No, no, no. I mean, yeah, yeah. I've done packages for it, but what I mean is, like, I think it'd be cool if, uh, just like you can read from environment, it'd be cool if you could do uh, get the version from environment, like because they have that at the at the build time. Um, sure. I mean, I mean, but you can, I mean, you can set that yourself during your sort of your any CI environment that you're doing, right? I mean, like, you're not. You, this again, oh, no, this no, no, again. for the application to read itself, like so you can like show like what your change log and stuff like that without having to use a package for it. That's what I was meaning. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, like the the point here is not about that, right? I think the point here is, what yeah. do you want the framework team to manage and own? Because they can't do it all, right? So it's nice to say, oh, we want all these features, but then they have to be owned by someone at Google, right? And and that takes staffing and other things, right? Away from potential other things that we need doing, like bug fixing and other things, right? And desktop and all these other things that we want from from Flutter, right? Like we, it's like we're like a bunch of kids with knives and forks going, I want, I want, I want, I want my food, I want, you know. And it's like it's like, so that's where the, that that kind of community and packages come from, right? Being able to do these things ourselves and that's one of the nice things is going back to that like that freedom that flutter gives like these are all things like you want to you want to put something in the build process make a package do something during the build process you can do that no problem and and a good example of this is um i'm just looked it up now it's it's build underscore version um yep that's the one and what it does cool. is it takes the package version from your yaml during the build process and puts a constant value in your app as in, in the awesome. data file Okay, then you just cool. read that constant, right? So every time you build your app, you get the right version inside your um, inside your apps without yeah, having to cross. Key difference, right, is if you were to do this with um, 
package info. Package info gets it from the Android package information or the iOS bundle information, right? Which means it has yes. to cross the bridge and it has to go away and it has to do all this other stuff. Again, it's to be honest, the zero performance impact on your application because so ne- well, it's not zero, but it's yeah, negligible yeah. because you're doing it once, right? Yeah. You're doing it once and you display your about screen or your info screen or your menu or whatever it might be, where you display that version, you're doing it then, right? What you're not doing it is 60 times a second. So you would not want to use this platform bridge, as you know, serialization, deserialization process. You don't want to be using that thousands of times a second, hundreds of times a second, because of course you're going to get lag. Because now you're trying to fit, squeeze yeah. something in one frame of 16 milliseconds and suddenly like you're easily going over that limit. Now, of course, async and away isolates won't go into there, right? <laughs> All um, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. be here for, for days. But, yeah, I yeah. think anyway. um, wrapping up the architecture part, Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, for people deciding and thinking about architecture and state management, a few things to take away from this episode is keep it simple. If there's something uh, which sounds complicated, requires a lot of boilerplate code and just doesn't feel right, don't do it. Use something which works for you, which is simple, and most importantly, you understand. If you write code which that you don't understand, who else going to understand it? Um, also, Flora is very data-driven, very reactive. So maybe shifting the viewpoint from UI to the data when um, architecting applications might make sense. Because instead of looking at, okay, what is happening where, look at the data. How is it flowing? Where is it coming from? Where is it going? Um, did I miss something? Uh, just, yeah. yeah, definitely be, uh, yeah, just like choose it based on the data flow and not because of, you know, because it's popular at the time, for sure. I mean, I mean, again, like don't start doing like second or third order functions and like functions that return <laughs> yeah. functions that return functions because you're gonna you're gonna get into a problem somewhere. Don't don't overcomplicate things, right? Yeah, just real quick, I wanted to check and see you know what the general vibe was. I know right now a lot of people are trying to decide between layers and features or folders by feature or folders by layers. Uh, mm. What what do you guys do? Uh, for me personally, I love having a UI folder, a source folder, and each one of those, like in the UI folder, I have a folder per screen. And inside each screen folder, I have an entry point and probably a common folder. And then a main common folder for all widgets. And then back end has classes, models, utilities, and stuff like that. So what about you guys? Well, um, I think I think I've kind of sort of, I've done it both ways, right? And I think you can even mix the two so you can have like, um, sort of feature level stuff if you want to but i kind of feel like if i'm going to separate all my let's say i was doing uh mvc right I have all my models in one place all my views in one place all my controls in another place maybe that makes sense right right doing it that way however if i'm gonna do things with the way i feel is normally with where i have like a screens folder or right that has like then a sub subfolder for each one of my main sections of my app couldn't screens maybe top level things and they can have any of the, the widgets and the things related to that in them, right? And it includes, if I might have blocks, then it might be in there as well, right? They, they relate to those screens, right? Then I would have a widgets folder at the top level, which is like generic widgets. So if I have a toolbar, for instance, that used across the entire every screen, then I want that above that like the specific screen layer, then I'm putting that in that widget sort of essentially common area. Um, I also normally make a backend folder, which is the back end of the application. And anything, this is my layering, right? So I'll put then inside there, my services. I have a services subfolder, repeat repo subfolder, and I'll have my service and repositories. So I can keep, 
if I wanted to, I can literally lift out that backend folder into a, into a separate package. And now I've got a backend package that's completely separate to my front end UI if I wanted to, right? But it's mainly about just knowing when you cross that barrier, right? Like you have imports from a completely different top level of your app. You've crossed the layer, right? So you can kind of, you can visually see that a lot of the time. So you can, it's just more of a hint than anything else. I mean, um, yeah, yeah and of course you way. have. So for um, me, go um, I used to be with different layers before, but over time I shifted more and more into um, grouping features together because for me, most often than not, when working on an application, instead of working on a layer, I usually work on a feature. And instead of just staying in the layer, I usually cross the boundaries between, okay, I have to adjust this model, I have to also adjust the UI, and maybe some backend calls. So usually when being in this work context, I'm usually in the context of one feature and I have to access most of the parts. So also as an example, when using Firestore, um, you don't have that much um, backend you want to separate maybe. Having all that in one folder, for example, um, for me, having a feature folder, in that feature folder, having a UI folder, a network folder, maybe a storage folder, which may extend some base class, which is in a top-level layer separated um, folder. Makes sense because when touching that specific feature, I can touch every class and stay in the same subdirectory. Mm. Mm. I, did, I did just think, when you were just saying that, I did actually think one thing I do do now is make an app folder. And that contains my top level like theme, mm-hmm. or also I have an app dot dot, which is normally my top level entry point, which is like contains the material app and any of that associated materials. Because main, I feel like main should just be your entry point. Main is just your main method. That's it, right? I feel like like it, if it needs in your main method, you need to go to the back end and initialize stuff, and then and then bring up your UI. So then you're calling the app. But I feel like don't just pile lots of stuff into your main dot dot. You know. It, it, it actually comes from, um, I don't believe it's a problem anymore, but there used to be a problem with imports when you had an import mm-hmm. from two different, a local as well as a package path that used to conflict mm-hmm. and used to have same type problems. Uh, I'm not sure if that bug was solved now, but... Yeah, it's solved. I don't have that anymore. I, but but I kind of learned myself into not doing that main problem because it would always happen when you had stuff in main and you'd try and use it elsewhere and you'd get that issue. Because locally, because main's the entry point, it would always have everything local. Right, and then if you try and import yeah. them with the package path later, it'd be two different type instances. But, but either way, like like you normally, I hate flavors, right? I mean, like you talk about flavors and architecture, right? Like you'd have, I normally do this main de- main underscore dev main underscore prod main underscore whatever, each one of my testing. different flavors, right? Testing whatever it might be, and then I can then spin up the main method can spin up different uh, constant values based on that, so I can now tell my application, oh, it's in in the dev mode or in the production mode or in this. So I can have different behaviors. So I can have more logging, perhaps, when I'm in the dev mode, or I'm using the dev backend rather than the production backend. And you can make those sort of differences. So it's also a very important part of architecture. So. Yeah. Yep. Well, Simon, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Uh, we definitely want to chat in the future more about this. We could go on probably for a week on all the different topics on this. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank you so much uh, for, you know, taking the time here talking about the subjects and uh, is there anything that you would like to promote while you're on? Oh, now you dropped me in it. <laughs> All right. Let me, uh, you can cut this bit out, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Like, so we've got the upcoming hack 20, uh, 
soon to be released. Uh, we'll, we'll be releasing more information on the website soon. Where lots of people heavily, heavily sort of working around the back end here at the moment, trying to get things ready for the day. So um, yeah, if you're if anyone's interested in the Flutter Hackathon, we did it last year. Good success. Uh, obviously, it's all in person. Seventy locations worldwide. 24, 24 hour live stream, which we will not be repeating this year, but we will be doing <laughs> some streaming, some live streams. Um, yeah, so if you're interested and you want to be involved or you want to sign up to Hackathon, uh, go to the website, flutterhackathon.com, and um, sign up to the mailing list, and you'll get notified when when we get more information going out the door. Awesome. Yeah, and then also Flutter community. Make sure to reach out there, too. I know uh, you're one of the heads of it, too. Yeah, um, I guess. <laughs> uh, Norbert, what about you? Uh, um, actually, real quick, I'll cut this out. But And where can they find you, Simon, online? Uh, best place to, uh, I guess, get hold of me is on Twitter. Uh, Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is at DevAngelsLondon. Uh, kind of regret doing my company name because I was using my company name to begin with, but now it should be personal. But, you know, uh, that's what it is. And um, I think that's probably the, I think that's probably the best best sort of communication through that. You've also got, um, I mean, I've got people adding me on LinkedIn. I just don't accept anyone on LinkedIn unless I know them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I got to draw the line somewhere because I'm not joking. I have like again, I, I've, yeah. I've had to stop following people back because I'm not joking. I get like ten followers down. I don't know these people. I don't like people. It's kind of interesting that people think that um, they see that I'm following someone and they go, "Oh, he 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 must know this person, right?" Like 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 so that's giving. Yeah, exactly. sort of, I'm giving someone else um, like authority. I don't. Know, I'm, I'm sort of up in them, so I feel like I can't to start. I got to stop doing that, right? And I know it's not out of malice or anything like that. I just I can't. Yeah. In a plus nine, that I I've turned off the alerts. I'm just, I can't. I can't. There's yeah. too much. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Norbert? Where can they find you? Um, as usual on Twitter. Um, yes, mainly Twitter. I'd say I'm always on the podcast, so you'll hear me next week or the week after. I don't know when's next going to be. Um, yes. What about you, Rody? Yeah, you can always find me on Twitter at Rody Davis and GitHub. And um, yeah, we'll have links to everything that you've seen in the description and the show notes. So uh, make sure to, you know, rate us on iTunes. It really helps and Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to us. And I want to thank you so much for listening today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you and a future episode coming soon. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.